It's a mini episode. Mini episode. It's a mini episode. A mini, mini, mini episode. I'm Brendan. And I'm Nathan. And this is what we're... They thinking. Mini episode. Hello everyone, it is me, it is Brendan, co-host of What Were They Thinking? Uh, You'll hear Nathan in a little bit, but I'm just here to give you a little intro for this week's episode. So this week, instead of the traditional mini episode where we kind of talk about, you know, some some BS, probably going to talk about some Christmas stuff, announce next week's movie. Uh, we're still going to announce the movie. I'll do that at the uh, at the end of the episode here. But this week is a little different. We actually got to sit down, Nathan and I, with uh, actor, writer, producer, director, and all-around awesome dude, Joseph Culp, who uh, you may remember as Dr. Doom in the Roger Corman Fantastic Four film. He also played Don Draper's father, Archie, in... Uh, uh, Mad Men, so, uh, among many other roles. So uh, check this out. He's got a new film, Welcome to the Men's Group. It's awesome. It's a very, very good movie, and it's available. He'll uh, give you all the information on that as well during this interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. And stay tuned to the very end for the trailer for next week's film. Also, just bear with us for the first few minutes. Uh, there does appear to be a little bit of an audio hiccup, uh, some dropped dropped audio from the first little bit but uh you know it does improve quickly it does get better quickly so just bear with it for about five minutes and then you'll be off to the races what were they thinking? so now i know a lot of people were asking us about a very particular movie but i i, I do want to get to that but before we get uh before we get too deep into that i just want to ask you uh you have a, a movie you're promoting right now called welcome to the men's group uh, featuring other featuring other uh, big name actors like Stephen Tobolowsky, Mackenzie Aston, Timothy Bottoms, among many others. Uh, so why don't you kind of tell us like what this movie is uh, all about and how we kind of got it off the ground? Absolutely, thanks very much. Um, so yes, most people know me uh, if they know me um, from uh, that I played. I'm the first actor to Doctor Doom and the Fantastic Four, the original film. Uh, which is uh, kind of a cult status at this point uh, for various reasons, which we'll speak of. Uh, and also I did play the, the father of Don Draper on Mad Men and other things. But over my nearly 35 years because as an actor, um, I also began to uh, make films uh, probably about 15 years ago uh, as a writer, director, producer, and whole. And um, I made a few films, um, Hunger, which was based on a very famous Norwegian novel uh, by the same name, Reflective, uh, which is the investigative drama about 9-11, uh, and my latest, uh, which is called Welcome to the Men's Group. So Welcome to the Men's Group is a comedy drama group of men that meet to talk about their lives. This is a reflection of a kind of modern phenomenon of men's groups which is groups of guys that basically support groups that come together to just uh connect share and find a sense of community um that's kind of missing for a lot of men today um uh as you know we're, we're in a very different world with feminism women, women becoming more empowered 
than ever, Me Too, all of that. And so there's a real question about, you know, how are men going to find their new masculinity and all of that? And um, anyway, I've been in men's groups for many years. I really think they're terrific, uh, very inspiring. And and a while back, I said, you know, I, I think it's time to try to make a movie about this. And um, I wrote it with uh, I, I another guy who's a men's group uh, uh, fellow of mine, Scott Ben-Yashar. And we, uh, we, we wrote the script and then went about uh, trying to finance the film. And then we finally did it. And we have this most amazing cast ever. Uh, as you mentioned, Stephen Tobolowski, who everybody knows from about a million movies, including Groundhog Day and Californication and The Goldbergs. Timothy Bottoms, incredible veteran actor from early 70s, films like Last Picture Show and The Paper Chase. And he actually played George Bush on, on That's My Bush on television. Uh, <laughs> which is a classic uh, Trey Parker, Matt Stone piece. Um, uh, David Clennon, who was in John Carpenter's The Thing and a lot of other films. So some amazing guys. And the film is basically about these guys who get together on one this one particular day. They meet every month. And one day they get together to have their breakfast and sit down and share about their lives. And on this particular day... Things, uh, a lot of conflicts within the group, old gripes and things come to the surface and it kind of spins out of control and goes into chaos. But, you know, it's it's a it's a real, you know, um, upfront, up close, intimate kind of meditation about men dealing with their feelings, men talking about things that they would never talk about normally with women. Um, which is really not about sex entirely. It's about, you know, how they feel about themselves, money, work, uh, children, um, all the issues that men have to deal with today and that they're struggling to even talk about. And so the movie kind of breaks a lot of taboos about men being uh, tough and men being stoic. Instead, it's men trying to be sensitive and share what they really feel, what they're really afraid of, all of that, but we do it with a lot of humor as well, even though it's not a satire. So uh, that's kind of the that's sort of the gist of the whole thing. Welcome to the men's group. It's 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 pretty unique. I don't think there's um, there really hasn't been many films like it or at all. Um, and I, I invite everyone to take it to check it out. Definitely sounds very interesting. Now I I do want to ask because like. Um... I did get to uh, to check it out uh, last night, and my question is: uh, Did you ever envision this? Was it always going to be a movie? Because it feels like it could also work as a stage play. That's really perceptive of you. Um, absolutely, um, it 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 could work as a stage play, and and my partner and I wrote it more or less like a play for the re for and why. Um, mostly because it takes place in a single location mm-hmm. like the entire movie takes place more or less in a house on a on this one morning where the group meets there's flashbacks there's cutaways to you know other stuff but it's the the, the dynamic uh, you know rising tide of action is all on that one event you know one morning and so it's heavily you know it's a dialogue driven piece in that sense um, it's all about characters you know the plot is 
plot is kind of defined by characters in this case. You know, it's not like a movie where, you know, and believe me, it's, it's really an indie film in that sense, in that, you know, when I said we're going to do a film about a men's group and people say, well, surely you're going to have them go on a road trip or go camping and meet up with prostitutes and rob a bank or something really, you know, extraordinary. That No, no, it's going to be eight guys in this house dealing with each other on a single morning. And people really raise their eyebrows at that. But, you know, I come from the theater, um, as my, uh, my co-writer did. I've done theater for many, many years, and I was trained in the theater. And I really believe in the, you know, kind of the interesting quality of just looking at characters and listening to them and seeing how they interact. That's, that's really, as much as I love genre stuff, which I do, uh, and I was raised in the film industry and I have a great appreciation for film, I, I really wanted this, maybe also because I'm very, I really believe in, in what men's groups offer. You know, mm -hmm. just personally, I believe that they really have this value to for men to come into their authenticity and, and really talk about stuff more deeply than 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 going to a bar and playing sports, you know, and playing poker. So there's a place for that. But there's another place that men could go. And so that's the challenge of the movie. And and to me, to to write it more like a play in a way um, was was the way to do it. Um, it's kind of like. I don't know if, if you guys know about a, a early indie film from the '80s called My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, that's actually what I. That's actually reminded me a little bit of it. Well, I I love that film, you know, and that film proved something to most independent filmmakers. Like, well, Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn, and a great director made that Louis Malle, very famous French director. It's two guys at a table talking <laughs> over dinner. And it is one of the most compelling films you'll ever see, in my view. Uh, it, it breaks all the rules. And I just said to my partner and other people, I said, no, we're going to do eight guys like my dinner with Andre. <laughs> but, but it's also a movie, which means it will go there. It yeah. will get out of control. Things will happen that would happen more in a movie, you know. Um, we're compressing a lot into this single event, you know. So it does, it's filmic in that sense. Um, well, things happen, as you can attest. I mean, alluding to the, the, the point that Brendan had made that it definitely feels like a, like a stage play. Now, you've co-founded the Walking Theater Group, and apparently it says what I'm reading anyways, uh, based around the walking in your shoes technique, which is, uh, says here that you also co-founded. Uh, would you be able to like kind of maybe tell us uh, about yeah. the technique and you know why you would prefer theater over uh, other mediums? So, uh, first of all, let me say I, I actually I don't prefer theater over other mediums. Oh. I'm, I did grow up in, as I said, you know, my father was a very famous actor, and I, I grew up in the film industry, and I have a great appreciation for film, um, uh, and I love you know all I'm a big geek of film you know I, i've studied it for my whole life but but i'm very passionate about the theater yeah i mean and and you know when i started out as an actor that's that's how you start you know you know i mean at least back then <laughs> we started by I, I wasn't in movies first i was on the stage and i and i believed in staying with the stage all, all these years even as i went into television and movies 
there's something that happens in a live theater that is just powerful and transcendent and, and it's the medium of the actor of course it's it's really about the actor being on a stage for two or three hours so in the early, late 80s um i started working with a, a really wonderful um guy who kind of was a mentor he was a psychologist named john cogswell and john also had a kind of a more esoteric uh, orientation, you know, with um, transpersonal work and spirituality. And we started experimenting with a technique where you could actually, which to me appealed as an actor, where you kind of become so empathic that you can actually feel what it's like to be someone else. Okay. So it's like you're, you're it's kind of like movement and empathy together. And when you do it, you don't guess you don't act you don't guess what it's like to be somebody you actually just say okay i am now uh, you know i am now uh brendan or nathan and then i start moving around the room and i just start listening to what what does my body tell me right now so it's a pretty interesting technique i mean some people say it's a little like shamanism or something but it's called we call it walking in your shoes and what it reveals is the the core issues, the inner life, the sometimes the behavior of the other person. And it happens quite spontaneously. So to me, you know, at first you could say this was an amazing kind of acting technique or acting exercise. Eventually it grew over about 20 years into a personal development technique that, that I now teach all over the world. So John Cogswell has passed away and I'm sort of the living co-founder at this point but I've trained a lot of other people to use it. And they use it for coaching, uh, therapy, uh, business, where you, you, know, you walk as the other person or you walk their problem or you walk as an issue uh, or you walk something for yourself like my confidence or my relationship to my partner or money or something. And things come up you know, psychologically and you feel them in your body. So that's sort of a little on walking in your shoes and what I did is I took the technique back in the 90s and started a theater company or a theater group that would use the technique to learn about characters and build plays and and we did I did that for many many years and um, still do it a little bit on hiatus right now and and I would say the walking theater group you know basically used this empathy technique as their main tool to discover uh, how to do a play and to do it, you know, from kind of an organic place uh, where you would use the technique to say, all right, let's explore our relationship to, you know, security or food or, or, you know, our inner stories or something like that. And it's a way to work with actors and writers basically. But now it's a, it's a big personal development technique. So it's getting widespread use that way. And coming from that, trying to bring it all the way back around the original question, um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm trying my best. Uh, <laughs> you said, what's the walking technique? What about theater? And then what about this movie? The movie, you know, certainly grew out of some of that work, you know. Um, you know, look, sort of reaching, understanding characters as a writer and as a director in a really empathic way and honoring those characters. Um, 
So theater, big part of my life, and uh, this movie, you know, it it uh, it it wanted to be treated that way, and that was the choice. You know, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> One way around. I hope I answered a few of the questions. Yeah. Uh, so I. I... We'll ask then, because uh, you did mention you did mention, of course, uh, uh, your father uh, Robert Culp, very well known actor. Um, and so I think one of your first gigs in TV or film was on Greatest American Hero. So, full disclosure on that, uh, I was a young actor starting out in New York. I was studying, um, doing plays, and my father had his. What I would pretty much term his second really big series, uh, his first being I Spy in the 1960s, which was a huge sort of revolutionary show. Um, and then by the 80s, he did uh, Greatest American Hero, which was, uh, you know, quite an anomaly at that time. It was basically, you know, like a, like a you know, comic book genre about a, uh, an unlikely superhero. And he was the FBI cop. Um, FBI agent that sort of shepherded this guy, shepherded this guy along. William Cat played the uh, played the guy who was a high school teacher who who got superpowers. And uh, and my dad uh, did something which he rarely did, if ever. I don't know if he ever did it again. He didn't. Um, he was. Um, First of all, my dad was a writer as well as an actor. He was a famous actor, but he wrote for years, and he wrote on many of his own shows and directed as well. And he wrote uh, some episodes for Greatest American Hero. And one of them, he very squarely said, I'm going to write a couple of parts for my kids. And he did. <laughs> so the only, I would say, only gesture of nepotism I think I ever got from him. But, you know, <laughs> he was trying to be supportive. He was like, look, there, because uh, my, my brother and I both, Jason Culp and I, or we were both studying acting in New York and working there. And we got our first, you know, kind of gig on Greatest American Hero, playing brothers from a Latin, an unknown Latin American country. So we did it with Spanish accents, which was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we worked with my dad, which was, you know, it was kind of fun and also a bit humiliating, you know. It was like, oh, you know, he's in control because he directed the episode, too. <laughs> so he wrote and directed as well oh, as, I'm guessing, starred in, too. Oh, yeah, and he yeah. was in it, of course. <laughs> and, you know, we, got, we had this four... I mean, I'd grown up more or less around film sets. That was not knew entirely but I, I knew about them but now i was on on the carpet basically it was like now you do it and uh you know we were certainly self-conscious and nervous but you know i did did my thing and um you know it's good experience and i really am grateful to him for, for giving me that after that i i did begin to work more on my own and um you know and the rest is is uh history um and, and later, he and I appeared in a couple of movies um, together, um, completely, almost randomly. And I did put him in a film that I produced and starred in called Hunger. So we got to do scenes there together, too. Nice. So, yeah, my dad was, he was supportive in a very hands-off kind of way. But that was the one instance, you know, where he said, all right, I'm, I'm in charge here. My kids are going to get a job. 
Mm. <laughs> um, Hero, very classic piece of TV now. Oh yes, de- definitely. Um, Do you guys like grow up with that and or know about it then? Or? I watched. Uh, I watched it when I was a kid. I think it was a little before Brendan's time, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I've I've seen I've seen it like like a little bit of it later on, uh-huh. um, but yeah. it wasn't it it wasn't on when I was uh, when I was younger though. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But well, worth checking out. It's it's certainly. Something fun, a piece of 80s, you know, kind of uh, classic TV now, I think. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Perfect. anyone that's Perfect. listening, it's definitely it's definitely out there. Like, it's on DVD and everything. So Oh, definitely. And, yeah. and I've heard they've been, either it's going to be or they've been planning to reboot it for some time um, uh, with a woman in that role as the greatest American hero. Well, didn't okay. they, and I don't have to get off too um, too much, but I thought they had originally planned uh, for the last season of Greatest American Hero to go into the Greatest American Heroine uh, mm-hmm. to to have basically a female in the role continuing on the show. I think that's true. I think I think um, Stephen J. Cannell wanted to do that. Um, I know my dad was was even looking for. I think he even wrote something um, possibly to even help spearhead that and was even looking for, this was back in the late eighties, uh, was looking for the girl at that time. But then I, it just didn't happen. And, um, and I guess they, there was no, yeah. And they never did like a reunion show either uh, before my dad passed. So, um, but I think it's, it, it, I mean, now look, let's put it this way. And this, maybe this is a good segue to, fantastic four and marvel (laughs) in those years you know it's like marvel was nowhere uh uh, comic book culture was still basically underground Mm. it wasn't mainstream the way it is today i mean it just it happened you know when we when we first did fantastic four we were still in that um era where you know marvel just didn't know what they were doing and they did and in a way you know the technology didn't really exist either you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's 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 just true. Well, yeah, and I mean, even if you look at that time before that, I mean, there was if you want to talk about like you know iconic superhero movies, they had maybe like Superman and Batman. Like that's about it. That's totally it. And, yeah, and everything there is you know green screens and you know wires, you yeah. know for CGI. I mean, think about that. So we just couldn't do a lot of stuff, and. uh and even Fantastic Four, when we did it, which was '93, basically, um, still very limited. You know, very expensive to do big special effects, which is now common. And you know, Infinity Wars, it just it was impossible. It was never, yeah, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, that that script they would have they would have had a real hard time with that that <laughs> script back then. <laughs> wouldn't have happened. You know. So uh, yeah, a lot changed, and and in a way, Fantastic Four was was the beginning of that. Well, and so getting to that then, because this, uh, as I'm sure most or a lot of people listening know, there was a Fantastic Four film in the early 90s. Uh, I believe it was 1994. It was so supposed to be released, right. but it uh, never got a proper release. So how did you first hear about uh, this project and how did you kind of come aboard? So, you know, there's so many stories, of course, now uh, floating around about you know how the project came into being at that time in history. Uh, 
and and it, and by the way, there's a great documentary about that now called yes. Doomed. Uh, did you, did you guys ever watch that or or talk to Marty Langford or anybody associated with that? I actually did um, not for this, but I did uh, an interview with uh, Marty Langford uh, for another website I used to work for. Oh, terrific! About, about that documentary, yeah. So I did. I did get 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 a chance to catch that. It's it's great. I think he did a great job, and and it, and and you hear from all the actors and the director about the kind of you know strange tale of the Fantastic Four movie. Oh so, yeah, lots of conspiracy theories and all that stuff too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and we just yeah we even um, recently I, I uh, the whole cast actually came together for uh, for an interview um, podcast. Um, so. The thing was, it was, uh, you know, the story, of course, is that is that New Constantine, Nua Constantine films, a German outfit by, uh, held by uh, the main guy was a guy named Baron Eichinger. Um, you know, they wanted to, they were very successful in Europe and Germany, and they, they wanted to play in Hollywood. And, and I don't know how he did it, but he got the rights to a marble, you know. Uh, a title called Fantastic Four, and he perceived, hey, this could be something. Well, by if I get this the dates right and uh, wrong or whatever, forgive me. But it, by the end of '92, that was gonna, um, what you call it? That those rights were gonna expire if he didn't have a movie, if he hadn't started production on a movie. And even though he was, you know, hopeful that he would make a big, uh, a big budget film and get. 20th Century Fox and, you know, um, millions of dollars to do it, uh, he really had very few choices left because it wasn't happening for various reasons. And so he contacted Roger Corman, the great Roger Corman, <laughs> uh, who has made all the greatest B-movies of all time and uh, who I grew up watching, you know, Attack of the Crab Monsters and uh, came from outer space. Um and Roger said, sure, we can do a movie like that, you know. Um, it was the most, the budget, I think, was like around $2 million. It was the most that he had ever spent on any movie ever. And it, it, it had to get in production. And so the script was done in probably record time. And they had to cast. And they had to, you know, because it was, it was near the end of the year. It was, you know, coming up on Christmas of like 92 and so I just got it, got a call from my agent and said, there's a movie of the Fantastic Four and they want to see you as Dr. Doom. I said, what? <laughs> and I had grown up knowing Fantastic Four. I was more of a monster fan. I wasn't a big comic fan at that time, but I certainly knew all about Fantastic Four. I probably had seen the early cartoons in the 60s or 70s. And... I went right out and, and studied up and I went in there and I guess, you know, did my thing, which was just like, I'm, I'm going to go for this and blow the roof off. And the director encouraged me. And, uh, and all of a sudden I, I was cast and I was Dr. Doom and all these wonderful other actors, uh, young hopefuls were, were the others. And, uh, and I went, Straight to work, uh, working on this role, um, studying everything I could about Doom and learning about him. And and that's kind of how it all started. And we charged into that production with such gusto 
and passion. And that was the thing about this film, which is that, you know, the, the rest of the story will come. But the film was made uh, by the director and by everyone involved with an enormous amount of, of excitement and passion that, hey, we're doing the Fantastic Four. And we don't have the money to do it, really. But mm. we're going to do it. And we're going to mean it. And, and in a way, if you ever see the film, um, some of that spirit is what comes through in the film and, and makes it, you know, even, even by today's standards, rather charming. And it works in a certain way. But then came the later part of the story, that you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I want to, so what I would like to ask then, I guess, is was there a point during the production where people kind of got the got suspicious vibes that something wasn't going wasn't uh, going to happen? Like maybe there wasn't a plan to release this movie, or did that just kind of catch you completely off guard? So there really was no indication of that during the production. Let me state it again, that everybody was gung-ho. And the director, Ole Sasson, was uh, you know, passionate and very excited. All the actors were doing, really threw themselves into it. And, and, and me, certainly, um, as evidenced in, in the performance, um, they, everybody went for it. And... Um, and by, I guess by the end of 93, um, we were doing press junkets. Uh, we were doing, we did Comic-Con, which was very small at that time, I must say, uh, compared to what it is today. Uh, but everyone was excited. The fans were excited. We had a trailer and we were signing autographs through Concord, which is Roger Corman's company. Wow. Was was there not even a like a formal? I, I believe there was some sort of formal announcement by Stanley himself, wasn't there? Um, I'm pretty sure there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some kind of acknowledgement that he made. Absolutely. Yeah, he was, he was. You know, I mean, it was as it says in the documentary. It was you know this was a strange time for Marvel. They really hadn't you know they really hadn't figured out what what was going to happen in terms of making movies you know um i think there was a couple of others maybe the flash and um that just you know it was it was an early period uh, they just hadn't figured this out and hey we're gonna we're gonna have a fantastic four movie and we they had were, it. at the time they were starting to lose a lot of gr uh ground as financially anyways so a lot of the their ips got sold off which is there why he probably yeah. was able to get fantastic four for so inexpensively exactly and yet you know somehow people knew you know more or less at least constantine knew that you know there was something to hold on to here so you know we were going forward and roger gorman you know doesn't make a movie and not make money on it so he's gonna you know release this film and we, you know, I still have the, you know, press, uh, many of the press photos that we were signing, doing signings. Um, but somewhere that, you know, late that fall or early winter, the story that Roger Corman tells in the documentary is that, you know, he got a call from Barron saying, well, I want to, you know, buy back the film essentially from you. Uh, for this price, and Roger's a businessman, he went, okay, that's your right to do it, and he did it. And it was because at that time they 
they were they were moving forward with a big uh, deal with Fox to make a big budget version of the film. So finally, he got what he wanted. What we didn't, what we got was not what we wanted, which was a call. I got a call from the director, I think, and he said, uh, Joseph, uh, I got some really strange news for you. You know, um, they're putting the kibosh on the whole thing and um, we're not releasing. It was going to be released, I think, in early 94. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it wasn't happening. And I said, well, why? You know, and, and he couldn't really describe, explain it yet. And and I and it took a while. I thought, well, they'll postpone it for a while, and something will happen. But then, you know, as the months and eventually years, I realized, no, it's it's gone. They've shelved it, and 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 then I kind of perceived, yeah, I guess they're going to try and make a big budget version, and that took thirteen years before that happened. By the way, which was yeah ridiculous, and so you know. They got the gold mine and we got the shaft, as, as they say. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was a big burn. Um, we Because we put so much into it, you know, it's one thing if you did a job on a movie and I guess, you know, somehow it doesn't get a good release or doesn't get released. But we meant business, you know, and I, I certainly gave my all to this performance. And, you know, it was it was uh something I, you know, eventually became very proud of. And um, I moved on, you know, I didn't, you know, get bitter about it. I just sort of said, right, sure, whatever, next job, please. And on we go, you know, that's what actors do. But, but a lot, a lot of people lost from that, especially the director who, who just leveraged so much, you know, to do it and, 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 and sacrificed a lot in making the film. And he did a great job. If you watch the film today, Certainly, it, it it has a certain, you know, cheesiness and everything. But a lot of that was intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he knew very well that we had limited budget. So let's make this a real kind of, you know, slightly tongue in cheek, but, you know, fun uh, version, almost the way a comic book is. And that was real. That was the brilliance, I think, of the way he went about it. He said, look, we don't have the money to do it even as, you know, Superman for that matter. So let's make it like a comic book. Let's make it fun and 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 a little tongue in cheek and and overly dramatic at times and all of that. And it it's very charming uh the way he did it. And even though the special effects are rudimentary, he focused on what you have to do, characters. You know, and that's what people like about the movie still to this day. You know, that now comes the story of the irony of the Fantastic Four, which is that it, it eventually became the biggest bootleg of all time. And when, and millions of people have seen the film, more than I think would have ever seen it had it been released. And now we're sort of a piece of cult status history, you know? So it's, it's kind of funny, whereas when they finally released the big budget films, they were all essentially flops. Well, yeah. that's it, that they were very, a lot of people felt underwhelmed, and uh, Brendan and I were talking uh, beforehand about how some people consider it the best Fantastic Four of the bunch, simply because it doesn't take itself so do- dark and serious. Yep, yep. exactly. Did you, curious then, did you get a chance to, did you uh, watch any of the other adaptations, or were you kind of like, I don't I don't need to see those? <laughs> um, you know what, I've seen... Uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen 
both the you know the first big one i definitely saw i think uh, yeah and i saw silver surfer i didn't see the last one which people just radically panned just said, yeah <laughs> not even like worth your time and all i can do is take those yeah and i saw them and 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 what i don't know i'm a filmmaker what, what was my assessment it was like well they had all the the you know all the great special effects you could want but something was missing. And I think what was missing was, I think you said it, maybe a certain real kind of humor, but more importantly, a kind of honoring the original source material. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is really what fans want. You know, that's what fans like. That's what I like, you know. And, and our film, without question, honors the source material. It, it, the, the actors, uh, the characterizations might doom which I get a lot of, you know, uh, questions about. And people, I have fans, you know, to this day. I, I've done signings. People ask me for pictures. I, I sometimes send them to people. I get emails to this day, 25 years later. <laughs> I'm getting a fan mail about my Dr. Doom, which is, and, and they're very generous in saying things like, you know, you got it right with Dr. Doom. And, and you know, all I say to them is like, I just wanted to give, I wanted to honor the legacy of this thing and make Doom the way I I see him, you know, which is, and in the the newer films, there was a kind of trying to make Doom very, you know, not so grand, you know, he was naturalistic, he was kind of subdued in a certain way. It's like that's not Doctor Doom, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Especially Doom. in that last one, uh, the the most recent one as well. Yeah, it's yeah. like. Doom is 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 like a classic, you know, uh, tyrant and and genius of uh, on the grand scale. He, he he's of Shakespearean proportions. You know that's how he is. You know it's like you got to do that, and so that's why I I did it the way I did. But all I can say is that that's you know if if I get that response today from something that essentially you could say is is dated or whatever. You know, it means that we were on to something right, you know, and 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 there's some people say there may be a curse on the Fantastic Four franchise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's something to be said that uh, every film that was the of the released films that came after yours, uh, not a single one of them has been met with any kind of praise or None. success. None. None. Yeah. And I have a small theory about that, by the way. And okay. it goes, I mean, one is that. I, I, I think we did, as I said before, we tried to honor the source material. There was a kind of passion involved. And, you know, when you get into big budget films, sometimes that gets lost, you know, mm -hmm. but you try to get really fancy and that gets lost and actors are kind of doing their thing. And, and there's, there's a, in fact, it's a mistake that can commonly happen, which is like, well, we'll make it better than the comic, you know? We'll we'll modernize it. We'll we'll make the characters real snarky or something like that. Uh, you know that doesn't always work. That's number one. Um, number two, there's this theory I have, which is that because the first film, which had all this energy around it, was basically repressed. You know, it was it's in a it's in a vault somewhere. The original negative is probably in a vault here in LA or, or maybe, you know, Germany somewhere. 
And they never have recognized the film. You know, not Fox, not Marvel, not anyone, Constantine films. Everyone disowned it on a certain way. And there's a theory that says when you disown a part of something, like in a system, it's a systems theory, uh, the rest of it doesn't go well. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, if, like, like if you look at it like a family, like if there was some, you know, something hidden in the family history, mm. it, it, it means that other generations kind of suffer because of that. And, and they say that if you don't honor the originator of something, uh, the other businesses based on it don't go very well. And, and, and until you do, you won't have success. So it's, it's a theory, and I think that might apply in this case. It might apply to the Fantastic Four franchise. Like, like and it, all you'd have to do is say, like, okay, so we, we made this film. Constantine Films should release it, I don't know, you know, online, DVD. They can doc, we could even go back and doctor up all the, you know, put in some cool special effects and redo them, you know, and make them a little more modern or not. Just leave it as it was, you know. Give it the uh, the Star Wars special edition treatment. <laughs> I feel that would cause the same kind of backlash too. Well, you'd never be able to alter the film. It, you'd honor yeah. it, like well, what it, what it was, which is a very you know simple approach to to the material in a way. But uh, you know, you could whatever you could fix a few things in in the the CG, which was very rudimentary at the time. Uh, uh, but ultimately, you know, you would release it. That was the thing. You release it and put it on, you know, you could even, I, I once said in an interview, I said, why don't they like, you know, put it on a DVD as an extra, you know, yeah. for, extra for all movie. the other big films, you know, <laughs> like, and by the way, here's the original you might be interested. We simply put, we have more fans for that film than, and more have seen it than the others put together. I'm sure. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, I like I honestly I have no idea why they don't do a DVD release at the very least for that. Yeah, yeah why not? Or you know, let it get Netflix on the job. <laughs> there you go. The original Fantastic Four movie, we have it. You know, I mean, <laughs> people would watch that. It would be awesome. Netflix exclusive. There you go. Um, <laughs> with Netflix, I'm going to talk to them about that. That's <laughs> there you go. <laughs> get. <laughs> Get George Netflix on the line. <laughs> he must be out there somewhere. Or she. <laughs> there you go. Could be Georgina Netflix. That's right. <laughs> uh, I know, Nathan, you were wondering about uh, Roger Corbin himself. Well, yeah, it's because, you know, Fantastic Four is notoriously Corman-esque, uh, for lack of a better terms. Uh, mm. All of his movies, they're... You know they are made for shoestring or sometimes no string budget, but mm -hmm. there's there is a undeniable charisma about the movies that he makes that they're they're endearing to the people who who watch them and all the stories that we've heard of for working with him is it's very hectic, very almost <laughs> do it yourself but in, incredibly educational and fun. Would you be able to speak to that? Ah, uh, sure. I mean, I can speak about my. Yeah, my experience there, it was, it was pretty wild. <laughs> and, you know, maybe that's, you said something interesting there, like the charisma around a Roger Corman film. There is something about that. I mean, there's many that we can name that are kind of like cult classics or whatever, even if they're, you know, notoriously B-movies. 
I mean, I, I watched it came from outer space just a few months ago, you know, and there it is, with, you know, <laughs> Lee Van Cleef and it was and the ice cream cone monster in in Bronson Cave, you know. Um, what is it? It 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 is like making you know a diehard indie film where everybody you're working for you know much less than any studio would pay you of course you're working for peanuts um because the budget is low and so maybe it brings out the best maybe it brings out a kind of passion in the people we we had an awesome time making the film i mean i think every day felt like this is impossible and we're doing it anyway you know, when I put on the doom suit, you know, it was like, here we go. I'm in this tiny little drafty box of a dressing room on the stages. He had these stages in Venice that were an old lumber mill. OK, that he had reconverted into a studio. There were rats. There were things falling down. It was not clean, um, you know, but it's like a theater and you know, back to theater. It's like, you know, people were just building sets. What do, what do we need this week? We need. Dr. Doom's lair. Okay, we need a big throne. We need some stuff, and there's carpenters in there banging stuff together. We need, you know, the lair of the jeweler. Um, and, and you know, craft service is like, you know, a bowl of Cheerios, you know, on the side. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah, everybody is there grinning. You know, they're all like, we're doing this. We're happy. We're not complaining. We have a job. Something about that, right? Um, work ethic involved, and and particularly with Fantastic Four, we were excited because you know we we were doing something that was you know had a had a history, was legacy, was famous in a certain way. And when I, I mean, where where would you get that experience? And I've worked on big budget films, you know, um, where there's a kind of camaraderie that you feel from pretty much everybody involved because mm -hmm. we're all kind of you know um baseline in a certain way we're all working for you know uh just to to work and so the you know the props guys and the effects guys i mean you know they took cats of my body we built the suit i had they helped me put it on every day it hurt it was hot <laughs> it's like and and before I, you know, walked out, I would walk out onto the set down this rickety hallway made out of, you know, plasterboard or something <laughs> uh, to the set. And and guys on air, uh, crew on either side were like in the hallway. I would start my big walk with my cape flowing and they would go doom, 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 doom. And they're like, you know, chanting and and. And cheering me on to go out and kick some ass, you know, it was like, that's pretty cool. That doesn't happen in, you know, a corporatized film, so to speak. I'm not saying I'm against that. You know, there are good, good studio films out there. But maybe there's something in that, you know, flying by the seat of your pants uh, where everybody wants to go for it. You know, that uh, that's what Corman offered. And he was many people have said and written that he was like a kind of this mentor studio for people. Well, and I mean, um, you mentioned that, you know, the camaraderie, which you can, you can almost see on screen when you watch movies like this. Um, 
it's 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 crazy. It's all I feel like when you're making like a, a smaller budget movie, uh, everyone's kind of working towards the goal of ultimately just getting the movie made. Whereas <laughs> if you're on a, a huge budget, you're like a tiny, tiny cog in the wheel. Right. Like, you know, uh, you, you get on set. Yeah. Yeah. Action. Green screen. Great. Go to your trailer. We'll call you in six hours. Like it's very oh, different. Yeah. There's no sense of connection in that sense. You know, there's. There's a, in that in that situation, uh, uh, you are you're a cog in a wheel. You do your job well, um, and very lucky if you make any connections. You know these guys, certainly because of what happened with the film. That's a big part of it. But but I dare say you know there's a few film experiences in my life where I feel more or less eternally connected to those people, you know, mm-hmm. and Fantastic Four is certainly one of them. I mean, we, we all showed up on a podcast recently and it was very, it was like a big love schmooze fest, you know, <laughs> certainly because we all kind of had our hearts broken, which is, you know, a reason to connect as well, but, but also because of the joy that went into performing this, you know, I, I, I it was joyful. It was hard. But I, I was encouraged to really go for it and use my talent and um, support it in a, in, a, in a different kind of way. And everyone was excited. So that changes you as an actor or an artist, I think, you know, when you have that. And Corman's experiences, I, I'm, look how many people came out of that, you know, under his tutelage, so to speak came out of that um well even uh jack nicholson early on was on a corman was in a couple of corman movies i believe couple he was he i believe he did little I, shop think, of horrors? I think little shop of horrors might have been his first role uh the 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 terror was one of them yeah comes to mind yeah not to mention with david carradine and sylvester stallone were both in the original death race movie absolutely um uh, Whatchamacallit, uh, Ron Howard, who I worked eventually for on um, Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. I think Eat My Dust was Corman, pretty sure. <laughs> and that was one of his first jobs to, to as a director, you know. Uh, so like at Scorsese, Boxcar Bertha, that was Corman. Um, numerous, numerous people. And so I, I feel very lucky to be in that pantheon and with a movie that, by all accounts, I just... I said this recently in an interview. I said, you know, and I'll say it here. I don't think there's another movie that's quite has the same kind of phenomenon as Fantastic Four. I mean, there have been movies that uh, ran out of money, never got mm-hmm. finished, like Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles, you know, or, um, you know, were just panned really early and, you know, but they never like don't get released. You know, they try and make money on it somehow. Yeah, I was going to say the only other movie I can think of personally that uh, never got completed, but it wasn't—I don't even think it was fully filmed. Uh, is there's like a Jerry Lewis movie the where he's Clown like a ride? Yeah, that's that, like the closest so thing I can think of. That's the closest thing we can think of, and the fact is, Jerry—I'm almost certain—Jerry finished it and yeah. did not want to release it. He was embarrassed about it, or he thought this won't work; it'll ruin me. And, he, and it was not released. Mm-hmm. And, and I, but I think you can still. I don't know if it exists. Somewhere. Little... It got uh, it got donated to the Library of Congress 
last right. year, I think, or the year before, but it's not allowed to be screened until at least 2024. Well, there you go. Yeah. So it will be screened. Jerry's gone. Um, you know, and it was personal. He was the director, the producer of that film. So he has the right to say, I don't want anyone to see something. Mm. It, as the producer always does, but it's just... Yeah, I mean, that's the only other... Like, he did that himself. It wasn't a corporate decision. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not not a safe situation. I just mean, like, the closest in terms of, like, luster of, like, oh, we've never... I'm curious about that movie. I'm curious about it, too. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Of course, with Jerry, you know, anything is possible. But I I just... uh, Yeah, and I, I was thinking a little bit about the film that became the... What is it? It was, like... um. It was supposed to be, uh, it, it, it was a film that was going to be made, but then wasn't made. It was done as a ruse for the CIA for um, getting the uh, hostages out oh, of Iran. Argo. It was a focus in Argo, that there yeah. was a, a, a film that was, it was real, but it wasn't ever made. So that's something similar, but not quite. This is a, this is a fully finished film. That is yep. sitting in a vault somewhere, and that after 25 years, none of the people involved are so far willing to release it, and that's strange. That I is strange. Never heard of it? I think it's singular. Um, well, I do have some. Uh, we did get some questions from some listeners here uh, for you. So w- one of our uh, one of our friends here, uh, Steve, would like to know. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty basic questions, but he just wants to know. Um, what it was like working on the movie uh, Badass, and also uh, just your experiences on uh, Mad Men as Don Draper's father. Well, there you go. Those are nice questions. Thanks, Steve. Um, well, let's see. I'll take them in, in order. Uh, Badass um, was is with uh, a film um, uh, that I was part of uh, uh, by my my very very dear friend Mario Van Peebles. Uh, who many people know as an actor and also quite a prolific director. Uh, Mario and I first worked together in the late 80s uh, and we first met. Um, our dads certainly knew each other because his dad was director Melvin Van Peebles. And um, he and my dad knew each other pretty well in the 60s and 70s. And and Badass is is the film of... Melvin Van Peebles, what really became the first, what many people call black exploitation films, but he's a black man, so it's not really him exploiting it. It was just about a brother from the hood who, you know, does some crime and and uh, I think kills a cop or whatever and gets away with it, which was a huge statement to make in 1970, I think it yeah. was, 70, 71. Um, and it really meant something, particularly to the African-American community. It was like, you know, that voice that was saying, look, we're brutalized by cops all the time, and no, everyone wants to pretend it doesn't happen. And Melvin goes and makes this movie, which he, which is super indie film, just made week by week with, you know, cash that he could find and put together. And uh, really kind of extraordinary and young Mario is actually in it. So Mario, uh, 30, 40, whatever years later, decides to make 
a film about his father making that film. And that film was called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And it's and Mario plays his own dad, which is incredible, plays Melvin, uh, trying to raise money to do uh, this independent film and making it with, you know, everything he could. And uh, and I, Mario and I, I've been in three or four of Mario's films because we're, we're good friends. We love working together. And uh, um, I was also in Panther, which is a, about the Black Panther Party. Um, and a thing called Los Locos and, and, a, and a couple of others. But uh, Badass, uh, he said, I want you to play this sort of hippie lawyer who makes a deal with this guy to try and get him financing for the film. And so uh, it was always a pleasure to work with Mario. And um, it's sort of a psychedelic scene, very, you know, very 60s-esque um, at this party with naked girls dancing, always. Mario <laughs> looked at with naked girls and dancing. I don't know why. <laughs> and uh, my hair was kind of long at that moment. And so, I don't know, we, just, we had a great time and we're... Um, yeah, we're always um, always talking about scripts and things that we could do together. I just sent him something recently. So that's uh, badass. Um, great to be part of that. Um, and Don Draper's father, I played Archie Whitman on Mad Men, which uh, certainly a great honor in a way to be part of that show, which I think kind of redefined TV in some ways, um, what was possible. You know, I mean, the idea of this, I, I think people were, you know, for years, Matt Weiner, I think, wanted to do this show. And people are kind of like, what? You know, Madison Avenue, 60s, what? You know, executives drinking martinis and smoking. That's never going to work. Well, along comes AMC, which needed to start making some kind of original content, you know, and they gave him a shot. And it just blew up to be, you know, one of I think one of the most important series of the last twenty years. You know? Oh, it was huge! It was like eight seasons or something like that. It was well, eight for a long seasons. time. And I think even more importantly, it was really good. I mean, it was. <laughs> there's a lot of shows that went for eight seasons, but you know, this thing, yeah. quality acting, it, it, the the art direction. I mean, it was such. It was like just delightful to watch this period of of our history of the '60s. And all the, you know, the roles that men and women had and all that. And, and uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to be the hard-hearted, uh, drunken farmer father of this mysterious guy. And whenever there was a flashback of, well, how did this guy start out? You know, he had this kind of hard-ass dad and um, grew up on a farm. And, and that was the big secret, too, that the, the main character, I mean, there's an idea. The main character isn't who he says he is. Yeah. That's a very, you know, usually we want a main character that's our hero. This guy was certainly an anti-hero in every sense, Don Draper. And mm -hmm. uh, I got to be part of that, and I'll always be associated with it. It's kind of nice. It was great to work with them. Really, really high-level people. Well, yeah, you, 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 uh, you appeared throughout the first, I believe, three seasons? Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, when they were you know, dialing back to his, his story. Um, who is this Don Draper, you know, and he turns out his, his name is really Dick Whitman and 
that grew up on a farm with his dad and his weird mom and was actually born from a uh, prostitute like his mother you know that i i visited <laughs> and uh so you know just the nefarious beginnings of this guy and uh yeah it's very very cool um i really enjoyed that experience a lot yeah and it just showed you know to me what what television could be because you know it it's also Mad Men kind of, I don't know, kind of precipitated in some ways the quality of series that we have today. I think. yeah, you know it's what very I mean? much a new, uh, a very much a new golden age right now. Without question, I mean, yeah. stuff happening with Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and all of it, it's like, I think Mad Men really gave that to 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 the medium. You know, it's like well. We're going to have interesting stories about characters, about time periods, uh, really quite extraordinary. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, yeah, there's a lot, lot, lot we owe to Mad Men right now, I think. Um, well, and I was going to say, too, um, a lot of, I guess a problem they have or they would have had in the past, which is not so much an issue they deal with anymore is your, your, you have so many networks now where you don't have to worry about censorship, right? Because you have, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. You have AMC and HBO and Showtime and all this stuff where shows like Mad Men, you can get away with a lot more. Yeah, you can, or get away with it or, you know, shall we say explore a lot more. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, network TV, you know, certainly still exists, but you know, um, they're still based on ad dollars that come from sources that are very, you know, that want to protect their brand, right? So they don't want to be associated quite with, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, they have a certain, what should we say? There's a, there's a certain uh, uh, censorship, <laughs> you know, in a way, about what you, what kind of content is going to be there that those ad dollars are, are supporting. And that model is totally different, I think, with Netflix and Amazon. It's subscriber-based, right? So Amazon doesn't even need the money from its TV. They, they've got plenty of money. They're Amazon, for goodness sake. Right? <laughs> they, yeah, let's, let's just compete on the level of interest, of quality, of, of you know, franchise, of getting eyes, Um and so many, so many amazing shows, and, and yeah, you can you can you know do stuff in terms of sex and language, and certainly any kind of thing that's graphic. You know, you can do on TV, on TV, on series, let's say. Mm -hmm. And uh, you and you know that's still that's I think network TV is probably still pushing the trying to push the boundaries, but there's only so far they can really go. My film bring it back around welcome to the men's group we're, we're talking about doing a series version of it now and it certainly belongs on one of these other new platforms because uh who, yes. who, who watched the movie so far was it nathan or, or i I, I caught it i caught it last night yeah i could see why you're saying that yeah so, <laughs> well, that's it the, um, the subject matter i'm assuming is quite hmm. intimate and maybe you know all warts showing type of stuff and it gets neutered when they do stuff like that on network TV. Precisely. Precisely. Let's just say, let's just say you, you would have to be on one of those, uh, platforms for the, uh, for the visuals alone. <laughs> so what you are very kindly referring to is that 
you know, the film is about male authenticity, okay, and how far we can go to get there. And these guys, uh, at a certain point in the plot line, uh, risk uh, going there because one of the guys who looks like he's suicidal uh, basically puts it to them, you know, and we will, he wants to take his clothes off and they're like, well, why? And finally, he kind of hijacks the group in, in, a, in a very uh, extreme way. And uh, they are going to have to honor, you know, their promise. Let's put it that way. And uh, everything happens. And it's all there. And in a way that many people who saw the film like, well, you're going to have to, like, you know, cut around that stuff, right? Let's just say, you know, penises happen in this film. They do happen. New and new T-shirt, Brendan. New T-shirt. Penises happen. Penises happen. Penises are there. We don't deny penis. You know, we're we're beyond that now. I, that was my choice as a filmmaker. I said, you know, we got to get over this. Pretty and these these this is a movie where we should do that. Um, that's the uh, that's the tagline for the film, right? Say it again. I said that's the tagline for the film, right? Penises happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were to go there, and. Uh, and 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 prudishness beware. You know the full frontal nudity, uh, male nudity is is certainly okay. You know, uh, in films, people oh, don't they still don't do it very often because everyone's very prudish and shy about it. Uh, unlike, you know, not to make the the obvious comparison, but a lot of European films which don't regard nudity as a big thing you know mm-hmm. but in america we still do you know and i i screened this movie in all over the u.s and it was extraordinary to hear the reactions from people um <laughs> who were like well we'll just give you like a you know i don't know what you know some kind of ratings problem <laughs> i said no it's, it, it's nothing illegal about it it's just we're not used to it we're, yeah we're, we have a great double standard we can watch naked women all day whether it's sex getting killed, you know, raped, whatever, that that's fine. But show a man's penis and everybody freaks out. And uh, and so I said, let's just push it. And 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 it's totally organic to the story, by the way, if you if you will agree with me. It's not just Oh yeah. It's not it's, it's, it's not exploitive story. or anything. And it's not even sexual. It's really no. about about how honest they will be with each other, how bonded they'll be that they they dare to, to strip. But well, it, I'll, oh, it, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I'll, I'll give you an example of that whole thing where people are uh, more concerned about, you know, penises than <laughs> <laughs> scenes of, like, extreme violence or anything oh, else. Yeah. There, was a, there was a film, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a, a cult film, uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Okay. Uh, it's it, yeah. one of the most disturbing movies. And I read a review where the person said... <laughs> <laughs> they were okay with everything except for the the show the showing of male nudity. <laughs> oh like, my god! It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so you're okay with eating, you know, parts of human bodies graphically, I'm sure. But uh, male nudity, yeah, that's really strange. And it, you know, it it just shows that we're still got this very Puritan kind of underbelly of America, like like. What's not, you know, is that not beautiful too? No, we, we don't regard male bodies as beautiful or, or you know, it, it's it's completely sexist. There's no question about it. And, uh, it, it yeah. And, uh, 
and I'm, so I, I decided, uh, uh, and, and many people challenged me. They said, you know, you can't do that because then you'll what? I said, get over it, man. Plenty of people. Judd Apatow, I always take my hat off to. He did a great film. I think it was Judd who did um, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I think that was it. And Yeah, I think he was, I think he was the producer on it for sure. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. he had a, I bet he had, he had a lot to do with that scene where mm. Jason Segel is crying in front of his girlfriend is breaking up with him and he's completely naked and yeah. one of the funniest things i've ever seen it was just like wow well and brilliant. and we found out later it was uh autobiographical too <laughs> is that so that, that yeah. happened to jason yeah or, or judd or some other uh, uh uh jason siegel i believe he wrote or co-wrote the movie or, or wrote it and he said that uh that oh, scene oh. was lifted from his life <laughs> uh God bless him, because you know, it was so beautiful and funny and vulnerable and the whole bit, you know. And I just thought he broke new ground with that scene. He just like, mm -hmm. there it is, folks, you know. <laughs> uh, that's real. This is this is as real as it gets. And even recently, uh, let's, I, I, I only talk about this because people kept, you know, coming up to me about the whole, you know, penis thing. And <laughs> I was like, well... Uh, 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 Vigo Mortensen in Captain Fantastic comes out of the bus drinking his mate or whatever and and his kids are there and he's like get over it it's natural you know it's just there and and Vigo you know one of the great actors of our time I think um, you know that he had the well I was going to say he had the something to, to get there to do that um, <laughs> the balls to do it and Timothy Bottoms, Timothy Bottoms called me up before our film was released, uh, he had seen Captain Fantastic. This is Timothy's in, in Welcome to the Men's Group. And he said, he said, Joe, he said, Vigo beat us to it, man. He beat us to it. You know, he, he was right out hanging all out there and everything. And I said, you know, Tim, I said, Vigo, nobody's going to beat us because we have eight. <laughs> at the same time man running around the screen that will never be beat in the history of film i dare say that will never be beat again so well, it was, was was this a thing um was so this had to be a thing then that was right up front on the table where everyone was everyone you kind of auditioned or hired i guess was like all right we know about this scene and it's gonna happen so let me tell you quickly about that they all knew it was in the script yep. quite, quite clearly. Mm -hmm. And I think they all knew also that this was not, we weren't going to, you know, uh, whatever, cut around it or something like that. This was part of the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, and everybody, I can only say, if you do see the film, and I hope some of your listeners will, um, you know, the the the. The job these actors do in the film, uh, I'm in there too, of course, but uh, they are extraordinary. I mean, by any standard, it's a, it's an ensemble film that you will rarely see. The acting is so good, and they're so committed to being these characters. And they felt that way. They wanted to do the film. Believe me, it's an indie film. They're not getting paid, you know, as a money job. You know, they're just getting paid, and they're passionate about, like, we want to do this. We want to do this experience. We want to know what it's like. They wanted that very, you know, that's a real artist thing, you know. And and they all knew about the nudity. And I said, listen, guys, we I do actually have to ask you to sign a, a waiver, you know, or a, a, 
nudity clause that says, you know, you're going to do it. You're not going to back off at the last minute and we have the right to use it, you know? So we made, and they all signed it. Uh, the one guy that did have a, a bit of an issue, uh, only because uh, his name is uh, Ali Sam, the wonderful Iranian actor who plays Mohammed in the film, uh, one of the men's group guys. And he went, listen, I want to do this movie so bad. You know, I want to uh, play this role, um, but I have to ask my wife about the nudity because if we, I do it, he says, there could be a real problem for me going back to Iran. <laughs> Or working there again, you know. Yeah. And I said, well, listen, dude, if you're willing to give that up to be in this movie, you know, uh, uh, Shalom Aleichem or whatever, and uh, let's do it. And he asked his wife and she gave her blessing. And he went, I'm in. And so that was really awesome, I thought. And, uh, and yeah, and so when the day came, the day finally came, and... My co-producer and co-writer, Scott Benyashar, was really cool. He, he went out. He had made white robes for us. White robes with uh, all of our name, names of our characters, you know, written on them. And so everyone got their robe. And, the, you know, like, we're, we're, today's the day we're, we're really going there. And, uh, and, of course, we didn't wear the robes very often, but the option was there to after we cut, people could put on a robe so they weren't just standing around with their, you know, schwanz, you know, hanging out. And uh, the funniest part of that for me was directing naked, you know. <laughs> because finally there was no other way around it. It's like, you know, I couldn't have somebody running in every time to what? Put a towel over me. It was like, the sh you'll see in the sequences, you know, there's a lot of, those are the only scenes, by the way, that have a sense of Im real improvisation. Everything in the film is scripted. But in those scenes where, where we needed to kind of go back to a kind of a primal state, you know, a primitive thing, uh, there were certain instructions given, but a lot of it just unfolded organically. And that was part of the idea behind it, uh, just as the filmmaker was, was trying to get these guys to tap into something that was primitive. And um, and so we would run these long takes of these improvisations going on, um, and we'd cut. And I'd talk, I'd stand there, and I'd talk to the DP Monty Rowan behind the camera. And I'd say, Monty, so how did we do on that? And there I am, just naked directing. It's <laughs> <laughs> the weirdest moment of my filmmaking career so far. But somehow, and he would sort of laugh and blush and go, "It's fine, man. We're getting great stuff." Uh, and that kind of, you know, <laughs> the closest thing, the closest thing I could think of related to that is I think I heard one time they were, uh, there was one director who was directing a sex scene between two very uh, nervous actors and he actually got naked just like they were to do uh, it. I think I've heard that. Who did that? Somebody I'm not sure who that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it was like Clint Eastwood or anything. Well, <laughs> we not Clint. Uh, not Bernardo Bertolucci, but somebody no. I've heard that one. Yeah, it was most likely it was a European director, though. That makes sense. Most likely. Well, that was it. It was getting into a place of safety and trust, and all these actors went there. And well, and, and and you're also just as vulnerable as anyone else, right? So that puts you on a level playing field with your co-stars. 
Absolutely. You know, and I, 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 I kind of went with that the whole movie. I said, look, you know, if I'm willing to go there emotionally, physically, uh, these guys will feel, well, Joseph's doing it. I'm cool. You know, I'm there. You know, he's he's our little, you know, he's our cheerleader here. And uh, <laughs> and I just knew that. And I directed myself in lots of plays and, and, and group stuff. So, you know, in a way, it wasn't wasn't that much of a stretch for me. But they were, uh, gosh, you know, I don't know. It's kind of unprecedented. And I I'm really proud of that movie and and the and the, the what these actors pulled off. It was, it's extraordinary to me. Well, I'll say even um, just having watched it, I didn't even expect. I didn't even expect it was going to go that far. Like you know, you're leaning into this idea about halfway to the movie. Um, yeah. I wasn't expecting the turn, so it, it's very it works. It's very uh, it's very uh, unexpected. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad it works for you. Yeah, that <laughs> the idea was that the narrative was an unexpected narrative. We're not sure where this is going to go. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was like, I wonder what trick they're going to use, like kind of like an Austin Powers type, hide everyone's uh, strategically. But nope, it's right out there in the open. <laughs> yeah. We finally, you know, it's like you're you're kind of like are we just gonna okay we're just gonna see from the waist up and then no no we're really going there and my favorite shot in the world is of timothy bottoms uh after his i won't say exactly what happens but after the 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 shenanigans essentially get broken up he's walking down the hall and uh holding a pillow just (laughs) naked and just walking down the hall of his big fancy house and there's this poor guy whose life is kind of, you know, he's kind of lost, even though he's supposed to be a success and actually he's miserable and all of that. And there he is. And, you know, it, there's something just genuine about it. And yeah. it's like, how many guys is that? That's really our life in a certain way. And yet we just never get to see it on screen. So, yeah. Well, and uh, so I'll just uh, I'll just finish up here with a couple more questions. I don't want to keep you for too long there, but um, I'll finish up with a, a couple, a pair of uh, fan questions here. Just uh, two more here. So one, they're both named Josh, but it's a different Josh. <laughs> it's from Josh, uh, Josh. Josh S. He says uh, he wants to know if you were talking about improvised dialogue, or sorry, the lack of improv- improvisation on uh, your film that you're currently promoting. But when you were doing the Fantastic Four film, uh, what he wants to know is, was there a lot of improv on that film, or was it pretty tightly to the, tightly kept to the script? Um, I'm going to say that we definitely followed um, Craig Nevis's script. Um uh, it was pretty tight, and, and in a way, that was really needed, I think, because um, not only for whatever economy purposes, but Josh, um, Josh S., yeah. <laughs> um, I think, I think it, it, it needed that kind of structured dialogue for everybody to land the lines just so... Um, I say it again, you know, it, it, it was written and directed, I think, too, and, and, and almost like the way you, you see a comic book, which is means it's really a written medium, you know. It's, um, it sells with characters saying things that are very specific, that advance the story, and so I think we hit all that. Now, that being said... <laughs> 
uh, I think there were moments where there was some improvisation. I think there were a little bit between Reed, uh, Alex Hyde White, and and Ben Grimm, Michael Bailey Smith. I think there was some little improv stuff there. And now I'll, I really have to just go to myself there because as Dr. Doom, I had really good lines, but uh, I confess, and I don't think Craig Nevis will, will be angry with me, there were moments when I felt like, I want to say just a little variation on that. I want to, I want to, and so I added in a few lines here and there, uh, particularly uh, in the big speeches, where I wanted to show something about Dr. Doom, about his level of being a kind of patriarch, that he saw people as like minions or even children, and I say that a couple of times. That was not in the script, I can guarantee you. Um, I say something like, you know, now why don't you go do as I say, like good little children, you know? <laughs> and, you know, very patronizing, very tyrannical, because he's, he's the ruler of a country. He's, he's mad genius, but he's, he has that kind of old world kind of um, thing that, that I wanted to give the character. And and then in a big in the big confrontation monologue with Reed when they're all trapped in the, the tractor beam thing when he's going to drain their power, um, I added some stuff that I really wanted, like his intense jealousy and kind of hatred of Reed, um, and I, I I altered you know certain lines or added you know. And I, sometimes actors do that um, if they can get away with it. And and if there's a director that says, let's hear it, and they say, yeah, I like it, or could you just say that and not that? So I was doing a little bit of improvising on that level. Um, but it was more, it was still more directed toward what I wanted the character to look like and to feel like uh, when he says, you know, um, uh, I had such a bitter hatred for you turning me into this, you know, look at it, see it. Does it amuse you? I don't think, I think in the original script, those lines were not there. And I just kind of went for it. I wanted to challenge Reed at that point, you know? Um, and in the last monologue where I'm hanging on the, on the parapet of the castle, um, there was something there where I wanted him to challenge Reed to save him. And then when he did it, he actually is going to save Victor from falling. He says, you see, you do not have the strength to strike the final blow. And I know I wrote that line. And I <laughs> wanted, like, I said, Dr. Doom, even at this moment, he's going to fall. And he still wants to mess with Reed and show that he's more powerful. And I just, I just couldn't, couldn't help myself. And I wanted to go for it there. And, and everybody seemed to like it. And I hope the writer doesn't blame me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a, a, one of those little moments where it's like, and even now you're trying to save me. I've just proved what a what a what a weakling you are, you know. And then he, you know, falls not to his death, of course, defiant to the end, defiant <laughs> to the end. Yeah. So some little moments of improv, but structured, you know, accordingly. Was well, there? And, oh yeah. There... Sorry, we we have uh, we have one more there, uh, Nathan. Do you have that uh, last? Uh... Question there. Yep. The other Josh. Uh, the other Josh. Yep. Yeah, Josh <laughs> K. Josh K. Because I'm coming right up. Okay. 
not going <laughs> to subject you to trying his last name. It's rather lengthy. <laughs> he wanted to know, because uh, he's, he's been on our show a couple times uh, for comic book movies. He's a big Stan Lee guy. He wanted to know if uh, Stan Lee had any input on the movie. Um, that's really a good question and one that Ole Sasson uh, and or the writer uh, Craig Nevis, I think, would, would answer better. To my knowledge, Stan was very much, he was supportive, but he was way in the background, meaning he really, you know, the, the, the title was basically in Constantine's hands, and now Corman, who hired, I, I assume, yeah, the writer and the director. And I think he was really just in a function of support. He did visit the set. Um, I don't know, though, if he provided, to be honest, any materials per se. The thing that was interesting about Stan's presence is that he he was supportive during during the filming. Um, and is this very sweet guy. And then uh, there was a kind of, you know, once things went the way it did, um, with it getting shelved, he he then there's even a clip in the Doom documentary, I think, where he's kind of a little bit a denier, you know, saying, Yeah, that film wasn't really meant to be made, or he said something in, that went in print. And that's a very odd thing. And yet then Ole, uh, and I just talked to him recently, has many instances where he met with Stan and Stan gave him a big hug and said, uh, you know, you, you did a great job on that. And, you know, it was unfortunate, but, uh, you know, you really did a great job. And and we just got a story recently that when Baron Eichinger, who, you know, had the deal, I guess, with Stan and Fox and everything, saw the, the first big budget version 13 years later when they made it. And what was it, 2008? One or four, I don't know what. Four, I think, yeah. Four, yeah. Uh, came out of the screening room from that film <laughs> at Fox, and he turned to his, I guess, a co-producer at that time. He relayed this to Ole later. He says, "Hmm, Ole's was better, actually." <laughs> and I was like, "Thanks a lot," <laughs> you know. After, but you know, it was kind of nice to at least hear that, even ironically. From the guy that, you know, most people say sold us out or something. You know, it was all business. You know, it was all business. And you, you can't, it's so hard not to take it personally. And it's just not personal, you know. Yeah. He, he had a chance to make this big budget movie and make us, and trying to get into Hollywood, which Constantine wanted to do. That, and if Fox or whoever else said, well, that's fine, but you can't, you can't show this other movie, then they had to agree. So, you know, it's just situational, finally, and certainly not personal. But I just know that Stan was, you know, very warm towards Ole and the project in a certain way. And, you know, kind of had to toe the line later when things went went the way they did. Yeah. Uh, and it even surprised me. Like, I had no idea that he even visited the set. So that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. He was definitely around, knew it was happening, was certainly supportive. He wasn't there saying, you know, grumbling or something. He was like, hey, <laughs> this is cool, you know. I mean, it was all news to him, you know. Uh, and God rest uh, 
Stan Lee. We wouldn't be talking yeah. about it, uh, without his creative genius. You know, thanks. That's very Stan. true. Thank you, Stan. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, before we kind of uh, wrap up here, I. For people who want to check out uh, Welcome to the Men's Group, which I do recommend, you guys should definitely watch it. It's very, it's very funny in a way. It's not like a, a it's a I, I, like I think it's a comedy. It's very dramatic, but it's very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people who want to check it out, how can they? Uh, how can they do that? Thank you. Uh, it's it's well, let's 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 use the term that 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 has been coined. It's a dramedy. Yeah, <laughs> it, I agree it, with that. It's definitely goes to some very dramatic places, very sensitive places. And that was all intended. And I just said, base, it, it's actually the opposite. It, it, for me, it was, it's a, it's a drama, but it has, it has comedy because I think the, the issues about men today are so, you know, can be so serious in a way um, that we just needed to also laugh and, and poke fun at ourselves. Um, and you, you got to laugh in order to get the bigger issues, you know, across, you know, that's my view as a filmmaker and, um, at least in this material. So it's a dramedy, uh, I invite you to see it. It is now released, uh, on VOD platforms, including iTunes, uh, Google play and Amazon. You can go there right now to Amazon or iTunes or Google play and say, welcome to the men's group. And it will come up and you can give it a watch. Uh, it's also on some cable networks, too, and I'm not sure which at the moment. But, you know, um, I invite everyone to take a journey into the inner life of men and see where it takes you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, check out Welcome to the Men's Group. And also, just as a as an additional recommendation, if anyone hasn't seen the documentary Doomed, it's very interesting and uh, about all about the Fantastic Four movie that we just kind of talked about. And and by the way, you, you should, here's my recommendation: watch okay. Doom, Doom, which is on every, every platform. I think it's on Netflix um, or or Amazon Prime. Watch Doom, and then go to YouTube and watch the movie. You can watch yeah. the Fantastic Four movie. It's oh, on. it's out there. Yeah, <laughs> and, thanks and to the internet, fully watchable. So, thanks again, guys. It's been great talking to you. Well, thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, what a pleasure. Thank you for your time. This is awesome. What were they thinking? Well, that was awesome. Joseph Culp, fantastic guest. Lots of insight. Love it, love it, love it. We're trying to get more and more people like that. Uh, So, you know, stay tuned because there's more of that to come, I think. More to come. But for now, as promised... Next week, ladies and gentlemen, we are watching, we are talking about a film. We'll, we'll, we'll have watched it before the podcast, hopefully. So, uh, yeah. But we are talking about a film, a Patreon pick from Luke Shannon. So what film are we talking about? Well, let's listen to the trailer. Regular Joe is about to uncover two sinister plots. Today we do God's work. We will strike a blow against America. I'm going to go watch Oprah. We must wipe out the entire planet. You guys have issues, man. And he'll use whatever means necessary. 
bring the bad guys to justice. I have to destroy a postal truck filled with lethal microbes before a doomsday cult or a terrorist group destroys the entire world. Yeah, like I believe that. <laughs> 100 virgins, they promised me 100. Maybe the exact number of virgins is not precise. Jesus, not that many anymore. Too many monsters after the first to go around. You've got to be kidding me. Let's you know what we are here. Don't bring out the monkeys. Are you ready? Not the oh, not the monkeys. Where'd you get so many monkeys? I don't know. I got nothing to do with this. Don't go mad. <laughs> go postal. Should I send a couple cruise missiles down there? I just wish I knew how to quit you. Everybody should buy my book, How to Fire an Employee Without Making Him Go Postal. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. That's right. We are talking about Uwe Boll's Postal. Thank you, Luke. But seriously, thank you, Luke, for being a Patreon. That's awesome. Uh, another Uwe Boll movie. At least he's already got us blocked on Twitter. So anyway, that does it for this week. We will catch you next Thursday for that episode on Postal, and uh, until next time, have a safe and happy holidays. Ha! You thought I was going to say our catchphrase, but I wouldn't end a Christmas show with, what were they thinking?